welcome to the Omfed podcast. Hello and welcome to the OMFIF podcast. My name is Lewis McClellan. I'm the editor at the Digital Monetary Institute at OMFIF, and today we'll be discussing central bank digital currencies. I'm delighted to be joined by some experts in the field from Algorand. We've got Pietro Grassano, uh, Business Solutions Director for Europe, his colleague Navid Isanola, VP of Engineering Research, and their advisor, Kopiar Giori, Professor at the University of Cape Town and advisor on CBDC projects for Algorand. Uh, thanks, guys. It's great to have you here. It's a pleasure. Um, So you guys have a new report on uh, issuing central bank digital currency via your your platform. Can you tell me what what prompted the release of this report? It's the second version of uh, of a report, right? An update. Exactly. Uh, Yeah, I think that uh, what prompted this release was essentially the lessons learned from a a wealth of different conversations that we had with uh, many central banks, both uh, in uh, the uh, emerging countries, uh, uh, in the uh, Americas, uh, and uh, in uh, in Europe. And uh, finally, also the great lessons learned uh, in in a feasibility study that we did with the G20 central bank that we cannot name, but where actually we went uh, in depth of many of the uh, elements uh, that contribute to the build-up of a CBDC uh, logic. And this feasibility study lasted uh, several months, uh, so many lessons learned, and therefore the need of an update of our version one, which then led us to the version two of our white paper. Fantastic. Yeah, it's a really exciting time. You know, people have been talking about it for a few years, but we're now seeing some projects in deployment and people are starting to I guess, find out what works and what doesn't work and and where to go from here. What do you think are, in terms of the way CBDC is developing just now, some of the things that we hear a lot about from central banks is uh, as a tool to support their monetary sovereignty. Can you talk a little bit about how how important CBDC is for that? Sure, I would probably let Coupier to chime in on this. Yeah, I mean, this is happening against the backdrop of a rapidly changing economy. More and more value creation is happening online and digital. And um, the physical world is actually struggling to account this properly. They are struggling to um, extend the reach of traditional monetary policy into the digital realm, which is you know, borderless. There are no national um, boundaries to the same way that that they exist for, you know, physical production and and things like that. Uh, So as a consequence, central banks fear that their core mandate becomes eroded just by the change in the economy around us. Uh, If you look at your normal day-to-day life and you look where you spend money and and sort of how you live your life, more and more does happen online and does happen digital and does happen with goods and services that you, without realizing it, buy from companies in other countries. And in order to make sure that central banks, you know, still can implement their mandate as effective as they could in the past, you know, two, three hundred years, um, they are looking to new pieces of infrastructure and the central bank digital currency is exactly that. It's one new piece of infrastructure that can help central banks do uh, what they used to do just better in a changing world. Mm, yeah, fantastic. Um I think a lot of people are, are definitely on board with the idea that we need we need a new piece of infrastructure to to address this new world. But I think there are still there are still maybe some questions about uh, or a lack of agreement on what the appropriate technology to, to underpin that is. 
obviously you guys are a blockchain platform we're, and a lot of people are going that way but uh we are seeing some central banks pursue uh centralized architecture for their for their digital currencies can you talk a little bit about what you see as the uh the unique things that you achieve with a blockchain architecture rather than a centralized one sure i i mean on, on my end i will just mention one specific point uh, which is uh, that blockchains avoid uh, uh, about the, the single point of failure problem, uh, which is a, a, a pretty broad class of problems. I will let uh, Navid go a little bit more in detail and uh, give some uh, uh, examples. And Kopia may add at the end. Thank you, Pietro. Yeah, so, you know, blockchain is a technology and like any technology, um, there's a choice on how it can be applied. Today, we see blockchain being used publicly with these permissionless mainnets that is unlikely to be the, the right way to uh, implement a central bank digital currency solution. Uh, but the functionality and the power of blockchain is in its uh, decentralization, in its uh, lack of single point of uh, failure. And in the central bank digital currency realm, that's applicable because you don't want vendor lock-in. So if you have a blockchain-based solution, you can have a uh, um, heterogeneous um, set of vendors and institutions supporting the blockchain um, based CBDC, um, what, while at the same time doing something that is very, very challenging to do with a centralized implementation, and that is ensuring that the central bank is in complete control of all aspects of the actual regulation, um, both technically and on the monetary policy side. Yeah, Navid already touched on an important point, and that is the, the vendor lock-in. The way that we have approached the design of CBDC toolkits and the design of CBDC solutions is uh, really from the infrastructure perspective. And then the, the question is what makes an infrastructure different from a product? And we took to the uh, example set by the internet. When the internet was developed, it was developed as a set of protocols and tools that made sure that, you know, communication among um, vastly heterogeneous actors becomes possible and becomes standardized. And we see blockchain in a very similar way. It's, it ensures that, you know, different protocols, different players, different institutions can interact with one another, can exchange value in a way with one another um, that will unlock value similar how the Internet did. If you have a centralized solution, the risk is always that, you know, whoever controls that centralized solution, uh, either technically or legally or practically, um, that they don't have necessarily the incentives to ensure this, you know, interoperability. So just to give you one concrete example, with blockchain, it will be possible to take asset tokenization, which at the moment is a very disintegrated process. You know, you have your origination, then you have your trading, you have your settlement, you have your clearing, you have your legal services. All of this is um, conducted on physically different institutions and pieces of infrastructure that are not integrated. With blockchain, we have seen that it's possible to both horizontally and vertically integrate these value chains. And as a consequence, a lot of the frictions that we see in asset tokenization um, just fall away and you can make it possible for a much broader range of assets to be tokenized. So these benefits um, can be realized very easily on a blockchain, but they can be realized with much more effort only in a centralized solution. And we, we sometimes, when we when we deal with central banks, we, we sometimes have the discussion, do you want to build the internet or do you want to build a new version of Facebook? And there's nothing wrong with the new version of, of Facebook. You know, it's uh, people got uh, um, 
got connected, you know, some people got rich with, with Facebook, but it's a product and a product operates with a very different set of goals in mind than, than infrastructure. So if you want to create infrastructure, you need to approach it from a more holistic perspective. And that's just much, much easier with, with the blockchain than with any centralized solution. Yeah, it's a really, it's a really fascinating point. I think one of the things that you, you sort of touched on there, and I noticed this in your report is just the, the way to ensure trust in the currency. And obviously with cash, that means preventing, making it difficult to counterfeit. Um, and I think it seems like, uh, the, the, the decentralized verification is really designed to like from, from the ground up, the whole point of it is producing that, that kind of trust, right? Yeah, that's right. I, I think, uh, you know, something that sometimes gets uh, lost in the hype of blockchain is the fact that with blockchain, the technology platform effectively separates the infrastructure and control of a particular piece of that infrastructure. I can say Copier has 100% control over this asset, uh, or rather Copier can create an asset and have 100% control over it, um, even though it's running on a blockchain infrastructure that is supported by, you know, um, the central banks, uh, uh, commercial banks, and whether whatever other entities make sense to be part of that blockchain system. Uh, but those other entities are unable to tamper with and you know, otherwise impact the running of Copier's asset. So following on, on what Navid, um, what Navid spoke about with regards to embedding, um, blockchain in an existing governance system, we can look at the example of the internet, um, again, for guidance. You know, when the internet was created, these core set of protocols and tools that were built in the sixties and seventies by a group of academics and, you know, tech enthusiasts and engineers, they, they were never designed to, to be a governance system in itself. That came later. That was designed, in, you know, by international organizations. Um, by internet service providers, you know, by commercial entities that later use this technology in order to create new kinds of value chains. And blockchain is, in, in my mind, something that is extremely similar to that. So you can use the blockchain technology to give you some technical features that are hard to achieve otherwise. It doesn't take away the burden for central banks to still think about the right governance structure. And in, in most cases where we've spoken with central banks, of course, they will set up, you know, a, a permissioned instance of the technology and they will be in charge to decide who, who is part of the, who, like, who will maintain the consensus protocol to make sure that there's no double spending, that the, the payment instrument can be widely trusted. They will make sure to, um, to include banks and existing financial service providers in this infrastructure because nobody wants to just, you know, disintermediate the existing financial system. They want to make, the central banks want to make it more effective and you know, reduce costs and increase competitiveness. So all these governance parameters with a good CBDC solution, they are adjustable and you can determine them. And then you need to embed it into a legal framework, which is a completely, you know, separate layer on top of the, of the governance. In some countries that we've spoken to, it would be very easy and tempting to, you know, make a CBDC legal tender. In some countries, it's not. And you just want to convince people to use it by having features that are better than cash and better than existing electronic funds transfer or checks or something like the existing payment infrastructure that we have. Um, and a good technology, I think, needs to empower whatever a country wants to implement without compromising some of the core features. And I think this is exactly where 
the discussion of centralized versus decentralized becomes so interesting. Like, where do you, like, what is the core of, of this tech? Where do you draw the line? Um, and blockchain has given an answer that once you embrace it makes many things possible and makes it easy for us in, um, in the discussion around, okay, what does it mean for governance? What does it mean for the legal framework? What does it mean for control over the money supply? Okay. I, I, I may add, uh, one element here and is the fact that uh, the decentralization of the infrastructure by no mean uh, endangers the centralization of the government. So the central bank remains the governor of the, the infrastructure. Like, uh, I don't know, the metaphor that I tend to use is uh, the police is not less centralized because of the fact that they use uh, the decentralized network of motorways to chase thieves. They are better off in fulfilling their own mandate, uh, utilizing the decentralized infrastructure instead of doing their own centralized infrastructure, right? So the governance is something different, the layer that is different from the uh, infrastructural one. Yeah, yeah. So you can get the benefits of removing the single point of failure and efficiency savings and, and so forth without com- without compromising or implying a particular way of governing or, or setting rules for for the for the system one of the one of the topics that we we've heard from central banks that they're you know struggling to implement i guess is, is transaction finality with uh with cbdc's can you talk a little bit about about that and how you deliver that in in your solution sure i think that uh, those central banks uh, tend to be used to what we call the legacy blockchain protocols uh, I will let uh, Navid explain a little bit what we bring different uh, to the market. Yeah, thank you, Pietro. So, you know, when it comes to risk-averse bankers, we want to make sure that anything that can be mitigated ought to be. And if a transaction is committed, it should be final, instantly final, and um, in no um, way be questioned about that. The Algorand protocol uses something at its core called pure proof-of-stake, Um, The result of that is when it makes a decision, that decision is done. There's no possibility of that decision ever being unmade. And it makes the decision incredibly rapidly. Pure proof of stake is today able to uh, um, come to a decision on transactions um, in about four seconds um, and currently over a thousand transactions per second. And those numbers are going to be lifted here, I think, this week um, to over 6,000. Uh, and, you know, we have a roadmap to go an order of magnitude beyond that, uh, you know, within a year. But the, the key piece that you're talking about is transaction finality. Um, Algorand with pure proof of stake addresses it in two ways. One is the any transaction committed blockchain is permanent and irrevocable, so instantly final. But the other is we have a whole set of core low uh, layer one primitives uh, that bankers and uh, uh, money transfer um, protocols can use um, that are also atomic and instant. Um, an example of this is one of the most common operations um, that we could possibly have is uh, swapping one asset for another or swapping an asset for security, et cetera. Uh, and most mechanisms, you either have to trust the counterparty or you use an escrow or you use some sort of time mitigation device that creates a some optionality where the first party has a different risk than the second party when it comes to that transaction being backed out. In Algorand, if we decide to agree on a swap, 
and we say, all right, Algorand blockchain, please make the swap happen, it will atomically transfer both values um, instantly and finally. Um, so there's no possibility of that optionality that happens from this, uh, you know, disjoint from a uh, time lock. And I, I'm sure Kopier and Pietro both probably have um, thoughts on this particular topic. Yeah, maybe one, one thing in addition is in the new landscape of payments, um, we will have a new payment instrument that sits somewhere between cash, you know, which has instant settlement finality. Once I've given Navid the, the $20, he can walk away with it. Um, and EFT, uh, which can take, you know, depending on the country, a day, three days, it can be almost instantaneous if you're willing to pay a little bit of an, of an extra fee. And CBDCs will in many instances sit somewhere in between what's important, um, from the discussions that we had to central banks is that it's not probabilistic so that it's not likely that a transaction is concluded, but that you can actually rely on this transaction to be concluded also in a legal sense. Again, the, the, the CBDC is not purely a technical system. It's a socio-technical system. There is a connection with the law. There is a connection with accounting. And for all of this, it's important that you have that you have settlement finality. It's also important that, you know, just from a user perspective, it's quick. Uh, if you do a cash transaction with someone and you had to stand around for another, you know, seven minutes to do chit chat until the transaction is concluded, that's not going to fly. So in order to make it attractive for people to use, you need something like near instant settlement finality. Otherwise it will never find the right sweet spot. Um, for functionality, and then you rely on legal means to make it, you know, required legal tender, which can be quite difficult. In, in like, even if you if you have a law that says it's legal tender, if it, if people don't use it, you know, the law becomes becomes pretty meaningless. So it's it's important to to you know have the the user at the center of like how does it feel to deal with this new payment instrument. Yeah, I think that that is, uh, as we were saying at the start, we're starting to see some CBDCs deployed in the wild now and, uh, actually getting adoption off the ground is, is going to be a, a real challenge unless, as you say, it can, it can deliver a seamless user experience. But I think there's a lesson here as well. Many of the projects that have been sort of deployed into the wild have been deployed at a highly accelerated timeline without necessarily the full proper engagement with all stakeholders and the consequences can be quite far reaching because if you cut corners when you roll out a new piece of infrastructure you know the the bridge quite literally might crumble under you under your feet uh, even with only a handful of people walking over it and I, I think it's important to not take sort of the these these early projects as the only benchmark for what a CBDC is or what it, what it, what it can do. I think it'll take a couple of years before we see, you know, the well thought through carefully designed um, projects coming to fruition. I think China is a bit of an exception. It, they, they were very early, but they also took a long time to get to where they are now. And they had a very clear rollout strategy. And um, the last number I saw was something like 260 million wallets activated yeah. on their CBDC. You know, I think the world needs to needs to look to how they rolled out the CBDC, um, not so much to how they designed it, because it's a very centralized, I would say, authoritarian sort of version of 
of a payment system that might not be, you know, yeah. might not translate into the West easily. But the way they rolled it out, I think that was really quite well done. And other countries should look to that and shouldn't just plunge in head first. Um, yeah. Rather have one ad- extra round of engagement with the stakeholders than have, you know, no adoption after you roll it out. Yeah. It's incredible the 260 million wallets and it's technically still a pilot, right? It's, uh, it's bigger than most CBDCs will ever get, but this is still a pilot for China. We, we, we have to remember the, the phrase that I don't remember exactly, maybe Lin Piao, one of the, uh, the foreign minister at Mao time said when he was asked, uh, let's say in the 60s or 70s, uh, a judgment of the French Revolution, and they said, well, it's too early to tell. So, <laughs> 200 years after, yeah. he had this, uh, this sense of long, long-term type of logic. We, I think that uh, we should learn something about it. Yeah, absolutely. Um, one of the other really thorny issues around the delivery and implementation of CBDC is, is around privacy. Uh, and it's been really interesting watching central banks around the world. You know, their thinking is evolving on this. And, uh, I guess, how do you, how do you find the appropriate balance between KYC and, uh, and protecting people's privacy? Um, yeah. What can you talk about Algorand's approach there? I'm happy to start. I think, uh, like everything here, the CBDC starts in technology and goes up through governance and even culture. Um, as you know, Kopier has mentioned several times. Technically, uh, what Algrand does is we recognize there is a continuum on that tension between KYC, perfect KYC and perfect privacy. And every country, every probably, uh, uh, you know, governmental regime has a different place on that continuum where they want to dial it in. Um, and so what we do from a um, blockchain perspective is let's give them the low-level primitives, the functionality they need to support whatever level of KYC, ML they want, and whatever privacy they want. But also recognize that, uh, um, that sometimes it's not uh, know your customers exactly that's required, but the fact that the customer is known. Uh, so can we change the game a little bit and give the responsibility to KYC to somewhere else, register on the blockchain that, in fact, it passed some muster, some level, some threshold of a KYC so it can participate in transactions of this range, transactions of that range, or completely unbounded transactions of any sizes. Uh, so that's the perspective that I take from the uh, um, technology side. Ensure that the Algorand Blockchain CBDC toolkit supports um, a KYC provider or a collection of them, supports uh, um, you know, different ways of unveiling that um, KYC, whether it's uh, um, just indicating on the blockchain that a particular account or person is known, or all the way to an appropriate government um, government uh, you know organization is actually able to um, immediately unveil it with the right credentials, you know, with the right uh, court order, etc. Um, so they're able to understand what's going on live if required. Um, and that might be with a third-party KYC authority or it might be directly with the blockchain. The Algorand blockchain 
CBDC toolkit supports all of these um, variants. And this actually even reminds me of the conversation around finality. Finality by itself could also be scary, right? I could give my money away to someone who is later discovered to be um, malicious. Um, but government governance controls can apply above that, um, just like KYC controls can apply above the blockchain that allow, while the transaction can't be reversed um, in, in the fact that it can't be undone, it, um, there are possibilities of allowing the right authority to have super user privileges um, in concert to you know, undo certain things that were determined to not be uh, legal or questionable. Yeah, really interesting to, uh, there's a lot of things that initially seem like totally desirable, but actually uh, it, it turns into a question of policy rather than just this is technically a good feature. Um, I think with the, the privacy side, it's a really interesting idea that, you know, verifying that the customer is known uh, to, you know, to a third party registered on the blockchain. I think, uh, I mean, it, it's the sort of thing that if if I were uh, a service provider and I could verify that the customer is legit and an appropriate counterparty, without handling their personal data, then I don't have any GDPR obligations. I don't have to um, deal with a, you know, pay a data protection officer quite as much probably. Um, so yes, yeah, so it could be, I mean, it goes quite a long way beyond, uh, uh, you know, the CDDC if you can develop a, a solution like that. I think it's also important to sort of to not to have too much scope creep here. And in some discussions, you very quickly see people raising issues around identity infrastructure or the lack thereof and mixing it into a CBDC discussion. These are two different pieces of infrastructure. Both are important. Both serve very different purposes. And uh, it's true that a CBDC needs some form of KYC functionality for high value transaction. For low value transaction, it's, it's very different. Why, you know, a hundred dollar transfer between two people needs to be, you know, auditable by a judge, you know, that's, that's not immediately clear to me. I mean, the FATF, they have, they have clear guidelines on, on KYC AML, but I think these, these guidelines, they need to be, um, discussed to some extent, like where the thresholds are sitting. Uh, it's also important to, to note that cash as a payment instrument, which people often say, you know, this is privacy preserving because the government doesn't observe when I hand somebody cash. It's not exactly true. Cash is not fully private. It has every every banknote has a unique serial number. Um, in cases of kidnapping and extortion, you know, banknotes have been traced um, even after they have been spent. So it's not that it's just that it's that it's expensive, but it's not the case that cash is truly privacy preserving. And I think a CBDC will sit somewhere on the spectrum between cash as a relatively good privacy protection and an EFT which really is not privacy protecting at all. Like any EFT can be audited quite easily by the bank and it must be, right? So again, on this spectrum, it will find its position somewhere, um, but people shouldn't sort of conflate um, the need for privacy with other use cases for a CBDC. There's, there's going to be different, in my mind at least, there's going to be um, different use cases requiring a different setup and in what we've done with with central banks is we've always advocated for this sort of flexible like threshold model where below a certain threshold KYC requirements can be relaxed if you want to 
so that you you have privacy built in, uh, which also ensures that privacy doesn't get you know demoted from a right to a privilege. Uh, the ECB at some point they 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 had looked into the concept of privacy vouchers, which I thought was a horrible idea, because it it turns what is a human right and privacy is prescribed as a human right into a privilege. A voucher is a privilege system, and I think that's something where people rightfully push back and say, well, your technology shouldn't make it all too easy for you know policymakers to turn a right into a privilege. At the same time, I would always say, well, yeah, that's true. But, you know, at the end, there are policy decisions that need to be taken in conjunction with the technology decisions that that we enable. Yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. Sorry. If I may add only one thing, there is another aspect that is the architecture we are talking about, right? Are we talking about uh, a retail CBDC? Are we talking about wholesale CBDC? Are we talking about a system where wholesale CBDC coexist with commercial bank money in electronic form? can take place, can be uh, um, tokenized uh, on, on top of a blockchain, right? And therefore, also the privacy considerations can change and at a certain point uh, may end up exactly in the same space or very close to the same space we are into today with uh, the electronic money. Yeah, it's a good point. And I, I think it's... Uh... There is a lot of hand-wringing uh, that I see online about uh, CBDC as a potential means of invading privacy. But it has always struck me that the current situation around privacy of transactions is uh, pretty substandard and actually could be improved on a lot. It's not like we're comparing to a system that, is, that protects privacy. Yeah, Which at the end of the day is the perfect sign of a strawman uh, argument, right? <laughs> I think we even have a concrete example of what happens when perfect privacy or very strong privacy exists um, with the, uh, you know, with the privacy preserving uh, um, cash, uh, sorry, monetary system that's on Ethereum here that's been uh, running into some trouble from governments all the way around the world. So about tornado cash here. Yeah. We are, yeah, without, yeah, I was trying to, you know, sort of run that line delicately, but the, at the end of the day, we can support the continuum as, you know, my colleagues and I have talked about from, uh, strong privacy to, um, you know, fully KYC, we can give a toolkit that gives the governments the ability to dial it in. Um, but I do think, as you mentioned, it may be a little bit of a straw man on how strong they really want strong privacy to be an option when it comes to these systems. Yeah, yeah. Um, I want to talk a, a little bit about one of the uh, the key priorities for a lot of central banks looking at central bank digital currency, and that is uh, financial inclusion. I think, I mean, it's no coincidence that where we've seen CBDCs deployed, uh, these are often uh, countries where there is a high proportion of on or underbanked uh, population. And for a lot of those central banks, increasing the financial inclusion score for the population is, is a key strategic aim. Can you talk a little bit about how you feel CBDC can be a vector for that? Yeah, there's in, in many countries where CBDCs are issued today, as I said, there is a large proportion of people who are unbanked or underbanked. In all of these countries, there's also a very large portion of people who are digitally underserved because they don't necessarily have smartphones. So CBDC solutions need to be able to, you know, address both issues. Uh, the issue of not having bank accounts and the issue of not having digital access in the form of, you know, internet connectivity or a smartphone. 
In the pilot that we did, we've looked explicitly into how can you facilitate offline payments, um, you know, uh, between people who don't have uh, who don't have internet connectivity. And there's ways to do that, um, you know, for smartphone to smartphone transaction, where you can, you know, preload uh, a certain amount of cash on on a trusted environment within the smartphone, and then, you know, two smartphones can communicate via near field. Uh, communication with one another to exchange funds and whatever one of them connects back to the system, uh, the ledger gets synchronized again. So that's a, that's a, you know, a, a variant that I've seen in, in different forms, you know, with smart cards or smartphone to smartphone or wearables. Or, so I think that is a, a vector that, that people can solve for um, pretty easily through technology today. Um, similarly, for the folks who don't have smartphones, there's a variety of, of solutions that, that have been purported. Um, when it comes to now including people who don't have bank accounts, this is a system design issue more than a technological issue. So what you need to ensure um, to, to get financial inclusion is that you have on and off ramps into cash that are easy and, and highly scalable and that you have on and off ramps into other existing means of payments, including, you know, bank deposit transfers. Because once you have that, you can start reaching parts of the population that banks haven't reached today. And the CBDC can play a role of a, you know, very low cost or free means of payment where you have your deposits directly with the central bank, you know, facilitated through some solution provider as an intermediary. But, you know, in, in principle, it's like cash. It's liability of the central bank. It's not the liability of a commercial bank, which removes some of the barriers that commercial banks have um, when they want to onboard, you know, when they want to onboard customers. But again, it's very important that this that this isn't just an issue of CBDC. It's also an issue of identity management. It's also an issue of internet availability. So these things need to be thought together. So you need to think about, well, if we want to have financial inclusion, which by the way is mostly about access to credit data, not so much about access to means of payment. Almost everybody has access to means of payment because cash is pretty universally available, but very few people have access to verifiable credit history. So if you want to create these new use cases, you need to make sure that, um, that you do it in a way that doesn't, you know, that doesn't get stuck in the old way of thinking about it, specifically when it comes to identity. Navid mentioned, you know, ideas around identity needs to be verified. You don't need to have the actual identity data everywhere available. You just need to know, you know, this person has been KYC. So there's lots of approaches when it comes to self-sovereign identity and things like that, that are testing, um, you know, how to do that using new technology, using blockchain. And I think they, like if you think them together with a CBDC solution, it can be really incredibly powerful. It's just important that, you know, this process of coming up with this joint system isn't curtailed by saying, oh, a CBDC needs to also solve all these other things at the same time. Let's be very clear about what the problem set for each is. And then, you know, go through the process of how do we, how do we bring this to the people who don't have bank accounts who don't have smartphones who don't have internet yeah i think that's a really important uh thing to i think uh cbdc is sometimes held up as kind of a, a magic bullet for for this problem but there's uh, as you say a lot of other infrastructure uh considerations that need to be 
addressed first. Um, it would, in, in, in most countries, it would be much easier to simply uh, pass a law that says every bank must offer um, a free bank account to people, even if they don't have identity documents. It would be it would be so easy and cheap to do that. Like South Africa, we do have these free bank accounts yeah. um, that have helped increase the percentage of banked of the bank population to somewhere around eighty percent. So in South Africa, around eighty percent of the population is banked. Yeah, they're not always adequately banked, but they are banked, and a big part yeah. of that is these free accounts. So a CBDC shouldn't, you know, just be the, this this one magic bullet to solve all the problems that you had in your, you know, miscellaneous list of things to do. It should be a very deliberate approach to give you the benefits um, that that we tried to outline a little earlier around, you know, uh, the digital economy and value creation in the digital economy, increased competitiveness, reducing uh, the cost of transactions, um, providing new forms of smart money. You know, th- th- these are tangible, real benefits. But it's, you know, it's not, it's not the one medicine you take and all your remedies go away. Yeah, I think it's one of the interesting ways in which CBDC is rolled out is that I, I get the sense that, you know, because banks already KYC their customers and central banks don't have the capacity to do that, it's quite tempting to, you know, use banks as your, as your sort of vector for, for transmitting it to the public. But then, by definition, it doesn't serve the unbanked, right? That that seems like a if that's going to be your way to do it, you need to have another policy designed to get people into the banking system like that. Yeah, that's why licensed service providers can fill exactly this gap. It doesn't need a full banking license to do payment services, and many jurisdictions already have, you know, e-money service providers or some variation thereof. So the the question is. Um, would a CBDC licensed service provider fall within one of the existing legal frameworks or do you create a new category? But again, this is not something that's fundamentally new or different from what we've done before. You know, when mutual funds first came up in the 70s, we created a new form of license for mutual funds or for hedge funds or for other types of financial institutions. So this is just the next iteration where the technology frontier has shifted and now the legal frontier needs to shift as well. It might also be, if I could add just a little on that, that, you know, uh, I don't see CBCs, I don't think any of us see CBCs as being uh, competitive with uh, commercial banks. Um, you know, there, there's probably an intersection there where they can take their experience, their understanding of how to work with customers, accounts, KYC capacity, and other things, and, you know, facilitate onboarding and find other ways to uh you know, add value there. But at the same time, if you drastically lower the barrier to entry for the type of uh, functionality and features required, then you might enable smaller or simpler license service providers to also exist that could serve the underserved. Yeah, that's a really interesting point. Thank you, Naveed. Um, I want to talk a little bit about competition in general. You alluded to they're not competing with the uh, with the commercial bank framework, but uh, yeah, can you talk a little bit about the importance of competition as CBDC develops and in, in ensuring we get the, the best outcome? Sure. Uh, I mean, I will start and then like Copiera detail further. I mean, from, from my perspective, I think that this is a matter of uh, uh, adoption of innovation, right? And adoption of innovation happens only 
if uh, there is a sufficiently competitive uh, landscape. Uh, and at the same time, there is a sufficient uh, knowledgeable and willing to improve the actual situation public sector that uh, fosters, uh, fosters innovation. Otherwise, uh, uh, those that are in a rent position will stay in their own rent position, right? So I think that uh, a certain element of competition is uh, necessary and conducive for the adoption and uh, extension of innovation, like uh, in this case. In order to avoid uh, uh, de facto monopoly situations, which, as we know, drive to a suboptimal equilibrium from a social standpoint. And uh, therefore, this is, uh, let's say, the, the, the first reason I can think of uh, uh, in terms of uh, going uh, in uh, a more competitive type of, uh, of logic. The second one is uh, more pragmatic, more simple, and less theoretical, and it is avoiding vendor lock-in. Actually, vendor lock-in represents a sort of... Uh, single point of failure, what happens if your vendor, who's the only one that can manage your own infrastructure, goes bust, goes belly up, goes on holiday, right? And these are all things that, uh, while designing a robust infrastructure logic factory, and I like Copier going ahead in the details. Yeah, I mean, there's a, there's a change in the, in the nature of banking that sort of is being documented uh, in academic papers more and more these days. And that is that banks are changing from what used to be pure institutions into platform-based institutions or platforms. So you used to have the case where, you know, one single legal entity, you know, manages your payments, manages your credit, manages your mortgage, manages, you know, most aspects of your financial life. But that has, has been changing for some time now. And, the, the risk for banks, in my mind, the biggest risk in terms of competition comes not from, you know, fintech startups or blockchain, but it comes from big tech companies who have over the years amassed a massive advantage with regards to data relative to the banks. So if an entity like Facebook or Amazon or, you know, any of the big, big tech companies were to move into finance in a big way, which they haven't done in the past because the margins in finance are just too small to be worth that time. But if they were to do this uh, going forward, um, banks really would struggle to keep the most profitable parts of their business operational because big tech companies can do it better and cheaper and to a much larger user base. So in a way, I see a, a CBDC as a lifeline for banks to make sure that they can be competitive with these new kind of entrants that they haven't faced in the past. Um, and governments sort of start seeing this, this line of reasoning because since the global financial crisis, we had very low um, margins for banks um, because of the increased cost of regulation that comes after Basel three and so on. So with margins being so low and the advantage of tech companies, you know, becoming more and more prominent, the question is how will banks as institutions, you know, survive and thrive in the future? And one way for them to actually, you know, survive is if they have access to a sufficiently large marketplace. So where does this marketplace come from? Facebook had, had given their own answer. They said, you know, we have 2 billion users. We launch our own payment service, turn ourselves into a super app like WeChat or Alipay or something like that. And, you know, then all of a sudden, whichever small startups wants to build a, a little Lego piece for 
the platform or financial services that we provide, you know, they come to our marketplace and it will be very attractive for them. And banks just don't have an answer for that. They don't have an answer for how do you get a large enough marketplace to have all these little innovation pieces coming to your platform. Um, and the CBDC is a, is a very powerful answer because we say, well, you know, on the one hand, it's national scale. So if you have a U.S. Uh, a digital dollar or a digital euro, you will reach every customer in, in the U.S. or in, in Europe. And even more than that, because we make sure that our platforms will be interoperable, unlike Facebook and Google and Amazon. Because we make sure as nation states that our platforms are interoperable, you will be able to reach basically everybody in the world. So it makes sense for you as a as an innovator to come to our marketplace. And I think this is the correct answer to deal with the threat of rapid disintermediation through big tech companies. Yeah, that's a really fascinating point. I hadn't really considered that. Um, we're running out of time, guys, but we should. I want to uh, give you guys a chance to talk a little bit about. I mean, there are lots of different CBDC architectures out there. Can you talk a little bit about what is uh, unique, what is different about Algorand's approach? My my perception is that we have uh, more flexible primitives uh, that actually allow the implementation of any type of uh, architecture that the central bank wants to put in place according to its own mandate uh, to uh, what the, I don't know, the parliament uh, tells the uh, central banks to put in place and so on and so forth. Uh, the model, uh, is it retail, fail, intermediate, uh, how you want to articulate between public money and private money and so on and so forth. We can accommodate them all on the basis of uh, a high-performing, uh, low-carbon footprint uh, blockchain protocol that avoids a single point of failure and uh, has out-of-the-box uh, role-based access controls that can permission the asset you tokenize on top of it and so on and so forth. So this flexibility is what sets us apart. That, you know, Pietro, uh, that's a fantastic start. And my perspective, of course, is always going to be a little bit um, lower level from the um, technology perspective. Um, what I see Algorand brings to the table, and especially, you know, in light of that uh, feasibility study where we learned so much about what's on the minds of the central um, bankers, is there's a whole whole classes of problems that must be solved for a CBDC to exist that um, reinventing a solution in-house doesn't make any sense. Solving consensus where we all agree on the common state of the ledger, um, the redundancy, the ability to have uh, um, something so safe uh, that, you know, business continuity, governmental continuity is ensured, even if 99% of the infrastructure is somehow, you know, magically hand-waved away. Uh, World-scale scalability, yes, you may start off in your country, but as Kopir mentioned, the economy is global, and being able to plug into that um, when you're ready, in the way you're ready uh, for, uh, you know, you want your infrastructure to support that, and Augrand um, can support any size um, of a network. And then um, cryptography that is so far beyond the uh, cryptographic standards of any other system uh, because of the people who are involved. Turing Award winner founder Sylvia McCauley, who's in, you know, uh, frankly, has had his hand in most of the most important um, crypto primitives that secure the web, that secure blockchain today, and has been pushing that with his team. So we're post-quantum secure. Um, I know the mythical boogeyman of quantum computers, people will give you a different opinion on how likely they are in the near term. 
um, but we don't want to take that chance. And so we're building a system that is post-quantum secure today. Um, and then finally, you know, we haven't talked about it much in this podcast. It's probably something um, to say for a different time. But programmability, once you have all this in place, have low-level um, programmable money that supports what the central bank wants, what the government wants to do with monetary policy, where they're in control of what happens, where they mix in the level of KYC that's appropriate for their regulations. Um, but we handle that infrastructure in a way that's um, you know, open and uh, um, extensible, and they don't have to reinvent it. Yeah, I mean, I mean, Pietro and, and Navid uh, sort of really brought the, the the points home. What impressed me most of sort of as part of this journey of the past two years um, was the approach, the the commitment to designing infrastructure and not designing a product. And to say, you know, if we if we take the step back and we say, look, we want to create this system that you know really benefits mankind like what are the different components what do we need for that and then putting you know this into action that that's sort of what what i like most about the work that that i did with algorand and, and various central banks um i think there's there's a very clear advantage um of a blockchain based system over centralized um systems when it comes to uh the commitment to interoperability the commitment to competitiveness uh, when it comes to enabling asset tokenization, you know, when, when, when it comes to securing um, key pieces of your infrastructure against natural catastrophes and things like that, um, that really makes ma makes it a, a powerful um, value proposition to me. And at the end, one point that we mentioned is sort of the team that was involved in this, it was really um, an, an unbelievable pleasure to work with them and with the uh, with the central bankers that that we've worked with. And in in one instance, there were you know people from all different departments of the central bank involved in a very large sort of stakeholder exercise. You know, engaging with these different perspectives from you know the uh, gung ho let's do CBDC payment systems people to the uh, monetary policy folks who say, well, well, hold on, hold on, why why do we need this at all? I think that was uh, that was a very exciting uh, learning journey that we went through, which in the end also triggered why we did this um, why we did this update of the of the white paper to reflect all of these learnings and reflect on sort of being pushed on the question why do we need a CBDC in the first place, which I think for many central banks is still front and center. They they will be convinced by cool tech features, but sort of being able to tell them look there's these like three four tangible benefits. Um, that for me, that was really um, a mind-opening you know, experience. Yeah, it's an incredibly exciting uh, process. You know, hearing about these conversations taking place uh, all over the world, and uh, I mean, just so many aspects of this. As Navid was talking about, you know, quantum cryptography and and programmability. Yeah, just just some some really huge concepts at play, and just so exciting to see. I guess the the development of uh, you know, digital payment services as a public good rather than as a as a product, as as you were saying, Copier. I think we will have to leave it there, guys. Uh, thank you, Pietro. Thank you, Navid. Thank you, Copier. It's been a it's been a really fascinating discussion. I urge everyone listening to check out their 2022 report, the issuing central bank digital currency on Algorand. Really interesting read. They've uh, learned a lot of really interesting lessons over the the past few years with the studies they've referred to today. So, a really interesting piece of work there. 
from some very experienced experts in the field. I think with that, I'll say goodbye. Please uh, follow us for more. Uh, we're on we're on Spotify. We're on iTunes. You can find our podcast on the website as well. Follow us on LinkedIn and Twitter. And uh, we hope to see you next time. Thanks very much. Goodbye. Thank you for listening to the OnFifth podcast.